Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to the things that you want to teach us today. We thank you that your spirit's with us. We thank you that you are the one that brings enlightenment to man, that you bring out illumination to your words that we might understand. Let your wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, and strength be with us today. In your son, Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be doing, uh, doing talking about this big portion, and uh, so we're not going to, I don't have a kid's teaching day because we've, this is such a big portion, and because it, as I was studying, going through it, there was so much material, things that I felt we really need to talk about, so we're not going to be talking about the New Testament or the prophet portion, because <laughs> it's just so much to deal with today, so that's where we're going to be in uh, this portion the whole time. Um, how many of you noticed that it said you shall do this and this at the turn of the year? How many of you know what that word is? Turn of the year, Hebrew. What is, it? What is the word? Tekufa. And I will submit to you that the, if you research it and do it, uh, talk about because it, it talks about the Tekufa at the beginning over in uh, are close to the beginning of the month, and then the Tekufa, turn of the year, at the end around uh, Tabernacles. So this is the equinox. Turn of the year, the Tekufa, is when the year turns from one to the other, from winter to the other side, the other part. So just wanted to point that out. I probably didn't put it in the portion, but I was reminded as he was reading. The Tekufa. All right. So we're going to be uh, in verse 14. And it says, and he relented. Some of your text says he changed his mind. Well, I can tell you that he doesn't change his mind or change his word. But he can, as he says, I can be compassionate to whom I want to. I will show favor to whom I want. And that's what I'm proposing to you is going on. We'll look at the word here. So it's Naham, be sorry, uh, I don't really like the word repent, but I do like the word comfort, comforted. Um, I want to show you what the Greek word says, to render propitious, appease, be gracious, to be merciful. And I would say to you, we're going to learn about this, especially how this is connected to glory, as Ravi was talking about in the in-depth portion, kavod, this glory and, and uh, uh, this character trait of who he is. We're going to really hit heavy on that at the end, but we start off seeing a character trait of him that, you know, even though they've done something that they shouldn't have done that really is a death sentence, we're seeing a, a very merciful act that he's relenting. And remember David, he had a death sentence and when he prayed and asked for forgiveness, God relented from the calamity that was going to come upon David, and he was merciful and gracious and appeased the act. 
So that's what I would say. And again, if you have, my question here is, did Yahuwah have legal ground to destroy them? He did. I mean, his word says, if you do idolatry, what's the result? <laughs> it says death. And so here's another, people say, well, you know, he's, you know we, we only see this mercy and grace in the New Testament. Really? I mean, this is one of the greatest acts of mercy you can see. And here he is being merciful and gracious to the people. If you have comments or questions, raise your hand. The microphone will make its way to you. Alex has a comment or a question. My question is, so Aaron was single-handedly responsible for the rebellious act against Yah. He kind of instigated the thing. Well, how come the sons of Levi were, they, they, they killed each other, but they didn't kill Aaron? We're going to talk about that a little later. We're going to talk about, <laughs> and Ward's got a couple comments, and I've got a couple comments. And so the, one of them, we'll get to this, but when it comes time to slay who's guilty, notice Aaron's not one of the ones slayed. So we're going, to, we're going to talk about that a little later. Okay, verse 15. Moshe turned, went down from the mountain, and in his hand were the two tablets of witness, the tablets written on both sides, written on the one and the other. The tablets were the work of Elohim. The writing was the writing of Elohim engraved on the tablets. Remember, this is the first alphabet to humankind. This is the first writing of an alphabet and it's coming from the Creator. Something probably like that, you know, something very similar. And we're going to get into this writing here in just a second. Yahushua heard the noise. He said, it's not the sound of whose shout of might or cry of weakness, but the sound of singing. Here's what the Septuagint says. It's the sound of those taking the lead in wine that I hear. Hmm, we've been talking about taking the lead. So he says, it came to me as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw what had happened. He saw the dancing. The displeasure burned in his heart. He throws the tablets out of his hands and breaks them. And you're thinking, wait a minute, no. So there's three great tragedies here in throwing down the, the tablets. It's the only existence of the writing of the Creator that we know of so far. It's the only existence of something written by the Creator of heaven and earth in a tangible form. I mean, wouldn't you love to see what does it look like by his finger? You know, it's the first alphabet and it's the destroying of the covenant between him and the people very tragic so can you imagine a guy says hey I've invented a device that gives everybody free electricity in their home forever and it's free and he picks it up and smashes it we're talking about something way greater than that that everybody be going oh no don't destroy it this is the writing of the creator and it's the I mean he's going to give them a way to communicate a language from above just bringing you to mind how 
weighty this is. But this broken covenant needs renewal, doesn't it? There's a renewal that needs to take place. He's willing to relent and, and have mercy, but there needs to be a renewal. We're going to see that. He took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire, ground it into powder, scatters it on the face of the water, and he says, all right, all of you, all three million of you are going to drink it. What has just happened? Now, some of you have been a part of Living Messiah for a while, and you know where I'm going to go with this, but there's new people that haven't, but we, we need to talk about it so that everybody understands. So I'm going to bring you to mind that what has just happened is harlotry, right? The, the, bride, the bride, the wife-to-be, has just committed the unthinkable. She took another lover. And when the husband is thinking that the wife has done something like that, what does the Torah say that the husband can do? I'll remind you. The priest shall write the curses in a book, and he shall wipe them off into a bitter water, and shall make the woman drink, like she's going to do in the river, drink the water um, that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her and become bitter, and the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before Yahuwah, and bring it to the altar. The priest shall take a handful of the offering and its remembrance offering and burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself, if she has been a partaker in the golden calf issue, because there's four million people here. How do you know which ones have been guilty? He knows, but everybody needs to see who's the guilty party. I mean, can you imagine? I didn't do it. He, she did it. He did it. I, I was innocent. And you'd have all this going on here because everyone knows this is life and death. Who's not going to want to lie to cover their neck? Besides, you're going to be, God tells you to put the sword on. You're going, how do I know which one to kill? I mean, gosh, it's terrible. But what happens is when she drinks it and she's guilty, what happens? What happens to her belly? What happens to her leg? So she's got a really skinny leg. And this, this isn't recommended weight loss, okay? <laughs> she's got a really skinny leg and a really big stomach. And it's very obvious to the husband and to the priest that she's guilty. So I would submit to you that the Almighty, being the jealous husband, is now going to find out, and he's going to make it evident to the whole nation, who has been guilty at doing this. So when they drink the water, everybody drinks down. Can you imagine everyone's surprise when somebody, man and woman, starts sprouting big bellies? Just all of a sudden. Their legs start shrinking. How can they now say, I didn't do it, when a miraculous wonder, an amazing sign has happened? And it's evident who has been guilty. Polly has a comment, and so does Gary. <laughs> Polly said, maybe the thigh didn't shrink like this, maybe it shrunk in length. I mean... Yeah, wasting could be either way, I guess. Gary. I've thought about this and mentioned it a few times that when Yeshua was on the cross, he was given bitter water to drink. And it doesn't say his belly swelled, but when they 
put the spear in his side, the water gushed out, which, you know, he became sin on the cross, and I think that he died the, sin, the death of the adulterous woman wow. uh, on the cross, and I believe that um, the evidence was the water that gushed out. Wow. Very good. Awesome. He took, he took the punishment of the adulterous woman upon himself, which is what the sin and death was. We talked about this uh, weeks ago, what that sin and death really represented, what it was about. So I'm submitting to you that that's what happened because I can't think of any way, it says 3,000 died, and how did the world, would they have known who, the, who to kill? God's, God is righteous. Is he gonna let the innocent die? No, he's gonna make it evident when, the, when they put the swords on, it's gonna be real clear, oh my gosh, Dude, I mean, it's, you did it. It's obvious, right? Polly. There might have been people running. Can you imagine? You know you're going to die. Probably people were probably running for the hills. Might have had to chase them down. Who knows? Well, before you go on, I want to talk about what you were talking about, the tablets coming Oh, wait down. a second. Maybe that did waste this way so they couldn't run. <laughs> What's that one guy that did, that did the walk like that? Go ahead. Um, I wanted to go back to the tablets. So if you could imagine, I mean, I think about this often, the frustration oh. Moses must have had. Because um, when we, our eyes were kind of open to this when we watched the pattern of evidence timeline that was presented. And we, it never really occurred to us that this was the first time that a language was being taught. Yes. It, there were pictures maybe in, in communication, but the Almighty was using a symbol that correlated with a sound to document a word that could be read exactly as it was written because prior to this, these um, instructions... No were, writ, were given or passed down father to son, father to yeah. son, generation yeah. after generation. Verbally. Now Moses has just gone up and has had a class uh, in phonics and uh, <laughs> <laughs> language 101. And think about how excited he must have been to come with the knowledge that had been imparted to him, going to teach now the Israelites, what was imparted to him and to come upon what he came upon, um, you know, with the tablets in hand. Imagine the utter disappointment and frustration he was feeling after the exuberant, maybe looking forward that whole trip down of what he was going to impart to those. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. Pretty, pretty amazing. Okay. Here's a couple of commentaries. So, burn it, melt it down. So, made the Israelites drink it. Immediate physiological punishment. Compare the English idiom, swallowing one's words. Mixing the ashes with water, turn the mixture into a kind of bitter water like that given to the suspected unfaithful wife in Numbers 5.26, which we just read. Go ahead. Before you get too far, when I looked at this, it kind of reminded me, it goes back to the garden. So you have three steps here, showing here. You have the um, revelation, and then you have the rebellion, 
and then you had the reconciliation. So same steps, it's repeating what the garden happened. It was the revelation, the rebellion, the attempt to reconciliation. In the beginning, he had the voice that walked in the garden. And as Polly was saying, now we have the written. So it's a replication then because of our holiness before sin, the voice could be with us. But then after the sin, which in the situation they're in now, the voice cannot be with them per se. So the word is given through the tablets. In the word, the Torah is like Moses is referenced in the New Testament. They read Moses in the synagogue every week. Then you have later on this in 3226, it talks about whoever is on the Lord's side. So Moses is calling out, you know, whoever's on the Lord's side, the Lord's calling out, you know, come yeah, here. Yeah, draw, and the, then, draw a line on the sand. Yep. And then it finally leads into um, come to me. Moses says, come to me, and Yeshua says, come to me. So these are similar terms because Moses is a foreshadow of Yeshua, the Messiah. So there's the word, there's Moses, there's Yeshua. And then it talks about outside the camp later on in 33.7. It's the first time it's used in the Torah, that mm-hmm. term. So you have Moses, or the Torah has been set outside the camp. Just like nowadays, as people are in churches or in the synagogue, the Torah is set outside the camp. We have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone and seek the Torah that's outside the camp. And then the last place that term's used is in Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. There's a combination. There's the, the garden. It's replicated here in this situation with those three actions. It's the word. It's just, yeah, you go yeah. on and on and on. And another connection to what you were saying, so you have the revelation and the rebellion. So when Messiah is revealed, what do they do? The, the, the Pharisees, they're rebelling because they can see the miracles that he's doing. It's very evident. But with this revelation, here comes the rebellion. And then right after the rebellion, like we see here, there's a relenting. You know, what does he say on the, on the stake? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So it's really, we're going to get into that character of the forgiveness here in a minute. Yes. Now it's, it, this is interesting, and it's not a complete thought, but I, I think there's something here that needs to look, be looked at. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became um, formless and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of Elohim was moving on the face of the water. So the deep and water, they're being... And at the end of the day, whatever's happening here is to distinguish right and wrong. And actually, I never saw that there was a separation going on in verse 2 here in the beginning of Genesis. But it's interesting, it's comparing... The face of the waters, and that's what he said, that he scattered the, uh, calf. the, the calf and the idol and everything on the face of the waters. And yeah. I'm just like, wow, that is interesting. There's always a sanctification process, separating because he wants to have a covenant people, a holy people, and when they walk away, something has to happen because he's not going to dwell with a filthy, dirty, unholy people. 
Did you have a comment? Yeah, uh, one of the comments, the same uh, verse that Bob had talked about, 33-7, and uh, being outside of the camp, uh, we, we get that same language and similarity with the person who has leprosy, but the person with leprosy goes outside the camp so that the camp can remain clean. In this case, you reversal. have the whole camp. It's a reversal. It's a reversal, and the word that's used is chutz. Probably not guttural enough. Chutz, is that good enough? And it means to sever. So there is a wall of separation between them and Yahuwah. So, and that can happen even today, uh, and that's why I won't get into that. We're going to get into outside the camp here in a minute. All right. Okay. So, traditional, here's just commentary. Uh, Traditional comment and modern scholarship have both given the golden calf a great deal of attention. We'll begin with the major historical question, which revolve around the relation of this story to another incident that, according to the Bible, took place hundreds of years later. For the book of Kings, 1 Kings 12, 28-33, reports that Jeroboam, the first king of Israel after the split following Solomon's death, introduced calf bull worship into his territory. It was his method of detaching his people from their allegiance to the temple at Jerusalem. We've talked about that before. So now he's going to do something that's going to cause them to take their eyes off of Jerusalem. They're going to take their eyes off of the place that he's chosen to place his name. And so out of fear, which it was located in Judea, in Bethlehem, in, uh, uh, it's located in Benjamin's territory, not located in Judah. He made two golden bulls, set up one in Bethel and the other at Dan, and said, in the same words used in Exodus 32.4, he says, almost word for word, these are your Elohims, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wow. Pretty crazy, isn't it? Almost verbatim, he quotes the same thing. Moses had been their visible contact with the invisible Elohim, and it was such a contact they craved as reassurance that they were not forsaken. Bulls were widely thought of as divine pedestals, and and I put this in here because I thought this was interesting, and Ralph uh, Ward and I talked about earlier, and hopefully he'll uh, share something. Uh, but it was such a pedestal later legitimized by the cherubim on the ark that the people constructed. Any idea that the Israelites really believed that the gold from their earrings would, could fashion a god at will rests on a misunderstanding of ancient beliefs, which were considerably more sophisticated than later generations. And often the Bible itself gave them credit for. The bull was the new link with God and was meant to replace Moses, the envoy, who, so to speak, had been God's footstool. Now, I didn't get a chance. I said that we were going to talk about it. I didn't get a chance to do all the research I wanted to do. But there's an interesting thing about this footstool idea. And I'm going to quote a couple of passages that Ward reminded me of before service. One of them is in Isaiah. Because about the, what's the footstool? So Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says Yahuwah, Master of heaven, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And so I don't know if you have any comments you want to make on this, but if you'd like to, you can. Uh, well, I'll just make a couple comments on this commentator. Um, let's see where to start. Aaron was not in the mindset of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was evil. He was actually setting up ball worship. Yes. I mean, he was setting up golden calves. They were, they were actually doing it. Um, unless you think Aaron was of that mindset, you know, I don't think he was doing that. If he was of that mindset, he wouldn't have survived. He would have been judged guilty along with all the other people. But in his conversation with Moses, he said, the people were threatening me with death. So that is, you know, there is a legal defense for that, that kind of a situation. You know, it's duress. So if you're forced to do actions under duress, that is a legal defense for what you did. Then on top, but, but he, it wasn't just that. He, what he did was kind of flipping what they wanted him to do. And apparently they didn't fully realize what was going on. But he made something that was representative of Yahweh. Because I don't think he, there was any way he was going to make something worshiping the gods of Egypt. There's just no way Aaron was going to do that. And if he, did that, if he had done that, he would have been judged guilty and he would have died with the rest of those people. So he did what, and I covered this Tuesday night, he did what that word means, or it's translated in English as golden calf, that word means a young bullock frisking round, and it's referring to threshing, uh, the threshing floor. So they hook up young bullocks on the threshing floor, and they go around and around frisking. Frisking means to search. It's searching out the wheat on the threshing floor. So the other thing, the other thing Aaron told Moses was this thing came out of the fire. Well, there is no, no way that a golden calf can come out of the fire. That is absolutely impossible, unless you think it's a miracle. So we know that Yahweh wouldn't do that kind of a miracle, obviously, that's obvious. So then you, what are you left with? The false gods did this miracle? They just got the tar beat out of them. In Egypt, I guarantee you, they didn't have the energy or the will or wherewithal or anything else to do any kind of miracle. Matter of fact, I think they were staying as far away and hiding in some hole somewhere, okay? So there's no miracle going on. So what came out of the fire? Well, he made something that represented what the calf was doing on the threshing floor. That is an action word. It's not, it's not a static word. It's not just talking about just a bull. It's talking about what it's doing. So he dug a trench in the ground, collected all the rings from the women, put them in the trench, built a fire over it, melted it, let the fire cool down, the gold solidified, and out of the fire came a ring, a big gold ring. And then he used his tools, just like you can watch these videos on YouTube when you take stuff out of a mold. They, he took his tools and he, it, they, it comes out rough. He cleaned it up and shined it up and you've got this big ring. Well, you can put it up on a, on a stand, having sit, you know, sitting horizontally, and there you've got a footstool, you've got a throne, you've got, it represents all kinds of things. So, you're, so what you're kind of proposing is that instead of making something that they wanted, he made something else, 
and this ring. Uh, just to show you that there's some connecting dots here, is if you, if you know that there's a, there's a constellation in the heavens that's a bull, and they call it what? If you look at the Hebrew word for Tor, there's Tor in the, in the scriptures, Tor means circle. So it's just very, there is a connection of bull and circles, not just the threshing floor, but there is a connection there. So very interesting, but we, I wanted to quote this here. He says that the, that the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So this footstool thing is a very interesting thing about what's happening here with whatever is going on coming out of this fire. This, it's about this throne kind of a thing, because that's what footstool really is. So just an interesting, I brought this out to kind of give you, uh, provoke your uh, mind to thoughts. Go ahead, Ward. You had uh, just one other quick thing. There's other commentators that disagree with this thing about the pedestal. So in the scriptures, throne guardians, and we, we read some of those verses on, uh, you know, in the last couple of Tuesdays, throne guardians are either above or beside or around the throne. I'm not aware of anywhere in scripture where it says throne guardians are pedestals. So, and he didn't, this commentator didn't really give a, didn't actually give a reference to where he was getting that from. Yeah, no, there isn't a reference. Yeah, good point. All right, one other commentary. If then the Israelite people had fashioned a part of the divine throne, as they had imagined it, why was the incident weighted with such condemnation when shortly thereafter a new footstool would not only be authorized but oblig obligatory? The parallel between the gold contributed in both cases is striking. Therefore, the judgment of Albright seems well-founded that conceptually there was no essential difference between the invisible enthroned on the cherubim or as a standing on a bull, and I put sitting, because Ward has been bringing out this idea of the, the bull, the bulls of Bashan, is literally talking about the, the gods that came down, the rebellious Elohims that came down at uh, Hermon. And so it made me think about the, you've all seen the picture of the woman sitting on the bull that Revelation talks about. And so is it really that she's sitting on a bull or is it related to this whole thing about what's happening at Mount Hermon, the bulls of Bashan up in Dan, uh, the northern kingdom where he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Is it really referring to she's sitting on that kingdom and on that ideology and on that doctrine? Don't know. So I'll bring up another scripture for you. Isaiah 41:15 says, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. Here's what the circle threshing floor does. O my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from Yahweh Zevaot, the Elohim of Israel, I make known to you. So a couple of scriptures bringing out the threshing does happen here on earth. Uh, and of course, the threshing floors. We've seen, we've introduced to you about three pictures of ancient threshing floors. They were in circular form. And I think you've probably seen the, the grinding wheel moving around in that, and the, the animals were moving around the circle. So it's kind of an interesting idea. Okay. The derogation of Aaron that the text appears to exhibit has been explained as the reflection of a positive struggle between two priestly houses. Aaron was the prototype of the later Aaronide priesthood in Bethel and Jerusalem, and Moses the patron of the Mushite, I, Mos, Mosaic 
priesthood at Shilon and Dan, as well as Arad and Kadesh Naphtali. Commentary, just something for you to think about. I thought it was kind of interesting that he's relating the Moses uh, Mushite to the priesthood at Shiloh and in Dan. So kind of interesting. All right, on to the text. Verse 26 says, And Moshe stood in the entrance of the camp, and he says, Who is for Yahuwah? Come to me. And Judah comes. It's not what it says. <laughs> Levi comes. And he comes, it's like he's drawing a line in the sand. He says, here, I'm gonna, he takes his foot, just goes across, he goes, who is going to be on Yahuwah's side? Come, come across the line. So the sons of Levi come across. And then it goes on, it says, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moshe. He says, put on your swords and go out and slaughter the people who have been guilty. And how many die? And we're talking at least three million people. And only gonna, they're only going to slaughter 3,000 people? That seems kind of <laughs> crazy unless it's very clear that these were the people that had made the error in sinning. So I'm proposing that this is clear that it was evident that these people were the ones who messed up. Moshe says, you are ordained today for Yahuwah. Now, Tammy and Bob pointed out a couple weeks back about this is filling the hands, right? And so here's what the Greek says about this verse. And Moshe said to them, fill your hands today for Yahuwah, each one by the son or by the brother, for a blessing to be bestowed upon you. They filled the hands by going and executing the guilty ones. Now, why is this interesting? Why am I pointing out? What happened to Phinehas because he was zealous for the Almighty and he executed the people who were guilty? He gets, he gets a special treatment, doesn't he? So God is basically giving a special blessing upon the people who have acted righteously in wiping out and destroying the people who are guilty at worshiping an idol in his name and breaking the covenant and the oath. This is grievous. This is punishable by death. And because they were the ones saying, yes, I'll be on your side. Yes, I'll put the swords on. Yes, I'll, I'll fill my hands to do your work. I'll do your work that you're commanding me to do. It became a blessing. And we talked about the work last week. So very, very interesting thing. Larry, go ahead. Good to see you again, brother. Uh, the same thing happened on um, Mount Carmel with Eliyahu. Yeah, we talked about that over. a week or two ago about Elijah. Yeah, the false prophets. Yeah, he does the work, doesn't he? Uh, he was willing to do it. He was willing to step up and point out who is the ones who are not righteously walking, who, who's not following God. All right, so I want to make this clear. Here's where we're going to start breaking into this glory part and what's really happening. So in verse 30 to 34, I went ahead and I marked out all the words that are sin. We've been talking about sin and the different Hebrew words attached to sin. So the orange words, I want you to, well, let's start with the black, the black word sin, which is um, the, the, in verse 30, it's the first, it says, you, you, you have sinned a great sin. Well, that sin is hatatem, and it's, it's what's called, it's, it's a, a derivative of hata, which is, 
It's this general term for sin, but notice that the next word for sin, it says you've, you've done a sin. Oh, it means, we talk about it here later, it means to miss the mark. You've missed the mark, and how you missed the mark was, now he's going to define it with this next word, chata, which is always associated with idolatry. You missed the mark through idolatry. So all of the orange sins is referring to idolatry. The black ones that are chatatem and chata are the general sin. But the red ones, chatat, is the one we've been talking about that is the punishment for the sin, for what's going to happen. And I want you to notice that you've got the sin, then you've got the, the actual act of the sin, which is idolatry. And notice that for the red sin, in the verse first, it says, I atone for your punishment. In verse 32, if you would now forgive their punishment. Notice that there's a atoning and forgiving every time the red word sin comes up. That's chatat. It's this punishment. And then in verse 34 it says, and in the day that Master Yahushua visits you and your idolatry, I'm going to forgive your death sentence. I think he's prophetically speaking about the day the Messiah comes. Because it's very well said that when Messiah came, that was the visitation. That's his visitation coming upon man. So here you've got three different words for sin, but in, in, in English, we're just thinking the New Testament's talking about all, sin's just one word, but it's not. It's different words. Now this word chatat is, notice it's noun. In, this ver, in these verses, it's a noun and it's feminine. Now let's look at the lexicon, what it says. The most extensively used form of this word in the noun form is the feminine form of it. It's both noun and feminine. And it occurs almost 290 times. The noun refers to the condition of sin. What the act has done to you brought you into a condition that you now have a punishment that's due upon you. That's the condition of the sin. And I'm here to tell you that your mighty one, your Elohim, the one who is above all, who is creator of heaven and earth, he's so compassionate that he's willing to atone for that that there is no offering for. You can't bring an animal for this kind of a thing. That's why David appealed to him. You've got to appeal to the merciful one that he might have mercy upon you. And so he was merciful enough to send his son to take away that condition that was in the northern kingdom's family of removing the sin of the golden calf, removing the sin of the idolatry, removing the sin of uh, all of the stuff that they did with the Asherah poles and the high places. Yes. Why is the, why is the unforgivable sin the unforgivable sin in which meaning you can't make a sacrifice or an atonement or an, or an offering for that. Because it's death. The, you, the only, what, what happened was when you did these things, you died. And that's why the 3,000 are dying. And the unforgivable sin Yeshua speaks of, what is that in relation to that? Well, I mean, he's talking about the blasphemy, but I, I want to deal with this, this 
sin here that it's a death sentence, but it can be atoned for. It can be forgiven, as shown with David, as shown with the northern kingdom. Yeshua came and he died that we might be freed from the death and the sin that's associated with it. Yes, Gary. Well, Yeshua spelled it out pretty clear. He said, uh, this is an adulterous generation. <laughs> so he, he said, you're guilty of adultery. And I, I think that's why he had to die the death of the adulterous Amen woman. to that. That's right. Yeah, the adultery. So here's this harlotry that's being dealt with here. And it's very clear that it's not just common sin. You know, I slapped my neighbor or I, I spoke ugly and, and, and I treated my neighbor inappropriately or whatever. These things you brought animals for. But these kinds of things brought about a condition that was a result of, the end result is death. And our merciful Elohim can atone for that. And as again, I pointed out several instances where that happened. Yes, Barry. I'm actually asking for someone else I was speaking to. Um, Northern Kingdom is the, how many, is which tribes? It would be everything except Judah and Benjamin. And Yeshua said, I came for the, the Northern Kingdom, everything but Benjamin and Judah. Which he called the house of Israel. Thank you. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. So chata is the is modified by the adjective, and usually refers to idolatry. The noun designates sin as such. So when you're looking at a word, there's a noun form, there's a qual form, there's a hefel form. So there's different forms of the word. So you always have to narrow it down which form. And it could be plural, it could be feminine, it could be masculine, it could be verb, it could be noun. So you've got to get down explicit to what the word is in the verse, and then you can look and see where else it's appeared in that form in other places to get really an idea of what's being said. Okay, let's hone in on what's happening here. Now, remember, here's why I say, even though there's 3,000 dying, why there is an atonement? Because he's just, he just said, I'm going to wipe them all out. And so he's now going to be merciful, and he's going to relent. He's going to, he's going to atone. He's going to appease, change his opinion about these ones that are guilty or the ones that should be, should, and he's going to atone for them. So why did the 3,000 die then? I'd like to add another aspect to it. What is, it, what is the high hand called? Huh? So I would submit to you that the 3,000 not only was evident by their stomach and their thigh, but I think they were completely unwilling to acknowledge or repent even after it was evident. In other words, we don't care. And this is evident. We see it in Scripture many times. People that are high-handed against God, total rebellion, like the woman that's like, you know, imagine she's, she's being drugged before the high priest, and she knows that this, she knows she's guilty. She knows that this is going to reveal her guilt, and she's not willing to say a thing. Or say, you know, she should have already fallen on her knees and said, yes, I did it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But she's not, and she's going to willing to go all the way up and have this done and exposed. That's high-handedness. That's saying, I don't care. I'm going to rebel all the way. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to acknowledge you. Yeah, I know I did it. I worship the, 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 the unforgivable. And yet, so what? What are you going to do about it? 
Larry. That picture also in the book of Revelation where it says they refuse to repent even in the face of Yahuwah and his judgment. <laughs> all this stuff is why God's showing us. We're going to see these things. It's going to happen. And so you got all the other millions of people. They're like, man, God forgive us all. Even the one that never had a part of it. He's going, God forgive us all. We have sinned. We're all terrible. Even though he did had no part of it, he's got a heart of forgiveness. He's got a heart wanting to, to intercede for the ones who are guilty. But the 3,000 didn't want any part of it. Small percentage, but they're there. Yes. In the book of the Revelation, one of the curses was a stone came from heaven and made the waters bitter. That's right. <laughs> you think they're going to drink it? The world's going to have to drink it? Wouldn't that be something if the bitter waters caused them all to swell and to waste away? Hey, Gary, what if we got a bunch of people walking around like this? Yes, yeah, so Gary says they're all going to, the rebellious son gets a stoning. And so we know that the 100-pound hailstones are coming. And what if the 100-pound hailstones are going to punish the ones who are now exposed of their wickedness? Man, let me tell you something. Please, everybody online, you do not want to be one of those exposed people in the end days. This, this the shame and, and you can't get out of it. it. You're done. Once this happens, it's, it's over. Because you haven't repented. You haven't, you haven't confessed. You haven't said you're sorry. You've done the high-handedness. And, and the sentence is coming. You can't get out of it. And it's going to be a terrible thing. Yeah. Terrible. Whew. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into your goodness now. And Yahuwah said to Moshe, come up from here. You and your people whom you have brought out of the land of Mysterium to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov. I shall send my messenger before you and I will drive out the Canaanite. He's going to send someone else to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up in your midst. Why? Why is he not going to go in their midst? It's related to the tent being going out and being set up outside of the, the camp. When the people heard this word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. They realized we are unworthy of the holy things that God has given us, and there has to be a cleansing. There has to be a, a, a complete, a, like what we do here when we're all asking for forgiveness, there's got to be a whole thing happening for the whole house, because God doesn't want to go with us. We're so filthy. Our rags are so filthy. Everything about us is so filthy. He doesn't want to go in with us. He's sending someone else. And we don't want someone else. We want him. He's ready to set his camp up outside. He doesn't even want to be in our midst. Oh, but we're going to see something. This is a stripping of the, of the once holiness that they were blessed to have. A stripping away of the holiness. My opinion. He says here, if I go with you, I'll consume you. You're filthy still. Well, there's going to be a rectification of it. Moshe took his tent, pitched it outside the camp. Paul brought it up. I mentioned it. That's because he can't be in this place that has now got, it's, it's defiled, it's tainted, right? 
can't be there. So there is a connection with the tent of meeting and the tent of testimony. In the King James, this phrase is translated as tabernacle of the congregation because translators realize that the noun ida, congregation, is derived from the same root as moed. The translators of the Septuagint had a similar difficulty. They noticed that the relation of moed to the root ud to testify and translated the phrase ohel hamoed as tabernacle of the testimony. Just an interesting thing about the two words I did not know existed. So you, this is why you see these two phrases, tent of meeting and tent of testimony. Okay? Tent of meeting would be moed. Uh, tent of testimony would be related to this ud. So something to keep in your mind as we move forward. So Yahweh spoke to Moshe face to face. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Yehushua... The son of Nun, a young man, did not leave the tent. He did not want to go. Boy, this is a guy dedicated to the Almighty. He does not want to leave the presence. And Moshe said to Yahweh, See, you are saying to me, Bring these people up, but you have not made known to me who you would send with me, though you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my eyes. I now, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, Show me your way and let me know you so that I find favor in your eyes and consider that the nation is your people. We're about to see something amazing here. Something really remarkable. How merciful and gracious our Elohim is in the face of such outright defiance. So he says, my presence does go, and I shall give you rest. And he says, well, if your presence is not going, don't lead us from here. We don't want to go. If you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. Remember, Moshe is interceding for the people. He's, be, he's like the priest here. For how then shall it be known if I found favor in your eyes, and I and your people accept you go with us? Then we shall be distinguished. We will be set apart. I and your people from all the people on the face of the earth, which is what's happening here. Now listen to this. And Yahweh says to Moshe, Even this word that you have spoken I shall do, for I have found favor, or you have found favor in my eyes, and I know you by name. I want to tell you that your Messiah knows you by name, and you have found favor in his eyes. You have found favor in his eyes. Forgiveness is happening here. And God's going to show you his glory. God's going to show you how his glory acts and how his character is so divine and separate from the other gods that run the nations. He says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show compassion on whom I show compassion. And now comes the covenant renewal. And Yahweh says to Moses, Cut the two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I shall write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets you broke. He says, okay, now you've convinced me. I'm going to atone, but in order for that to happen, we've got to renew the covenant. I've got to have the covenant written. I've got to pronounce it to you again, and I've got to have the people again say, all that you say we will do. They've got to come in an agreement with the terms of the ketubah if you're going to be my bride. This is so evident. This, this is legal proceedings we're seeing. 
legal proceedings that must take place for this to happen. He says, be ready. You shall come up in the morning. Present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. Let no man come. He cut the two tablets like the first ones. He rises early. And Yahuwah came down in the cloud and stood with him there. <laughs> and he proclaims the character of Yahuwah. And Yahuwah passes before him and proclaims an L. Here's one character trait. Here's the proclamation. Compassionate and showing grace. Patient and great in kindness and truth. Watching over kindness for thousands and forgiving. Forgiving, forgiving, crookedness, transgression, and sin. Avon, iniquity, and sin. The three things we mention every time we set up here. I'm not going to leave people unpunished. There's consequences. But I'm going to one day visit that crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third. I'm going to come and send my Mashiach and he's going to die and he's going to remove the crookedness, the bent way, the, 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 the wickedness, the, the adultery, the, the death sentence, the curses, all that's upon them. He's going to take it away because that's my glory. How many of you know it talks about Messiah being the glory of Elohim? Well, that's because he is, his name means the salvation of Elohim. He's the one that brings and pardons. He forgives. He's displaying the glory of the Most High to the people who come to him in repentance. And Moshe hurried. How quick would you be to fall to your knees and go prostrate? Prostrate. <laughs> How quick. I can't, even, I can't even fathom it. It's so amazing to me. And he said, see, I am making a covenant. I'm renewing a covenant now. Now that I see that you're forgiving, you're wanting me, you're wanting me back, I see that you have a heart for me. You want to put it on your heart, my commands, my joy. You want to be a faithful bride. I'm now ready to renew. The They've already had it. Chapter 20, they already had the covenant. But Moshe shattered it. And now he says, now it's time to renew it. How many of you know that when Joshua brought the children of Israel over the, the, the Jordan River, when they got across, the scripture says that Joshua did what? He renewed the covenant with the people because they had now they had been outside the land. They're coming in on holy ground and it's time to renew the covenant and make them know the ways of the Almighty in which they are to walk. When my Messiah Yahushua died, on, before he died, he's telling the people, look, keep my commandments. Here's the covenant. Renew the covenant within you because I'm going to atone. I'm going to forgive. But you've got to now make yourself available and walk in the way. The covenant's got to be renewed in your heart. Whew. 
Watch this. Before all your people, I'm going to do wonders. What did Yeshua do? Wonders. You see, when this stuff happens, these are all legal terms. When Yeshua is renewing the covenant, he's doing miracles. He's healing everybody. They're, they're saying, has anything like this been done before? This is miraculous. This is wondrous. And the Almighty is doing wonders before them because they need to see, I am, the, the, I am he. I, there's no one but me. I am the most high. Like, who else can do this? He's renewing it so that they with all heart, one mind say, yes, we'll walk in your ways. Now here comes the terms. Here comes the terms. So I'm going to make a. I'm going to renew the covenant with you. I'm going to do wonders. Here come. Here comes the terms of the agreement. Guard what I command you today, as Yeshua said. Keep my commandments. And I'm going to drive out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite. I like what um, Alfonso said. The <laughs> parasite <laughs> and the Hillite and the Yebusite. Guard yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. It'll be a snare in your midst. Break down the altars. Smash the pillars. Cut down the asherim. Get rid of all the wickedness and all the evil. Get it out of the midst because it can't be around or I'm not going to be with you. For you do not bow yourself to another mighty one. Recognize that in chapter 20? For Yahuwah, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous El. Do not make a molded mighty one for yourself. Terms, here comes the terms of the covenant. Guard the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. You will eat unleavened bread as I command you. In the appointed time of the month of Abib before, because in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. Everyone opening the womb is mine and every male firstborn among your livestock. Six days you shall work, but the seventh is the day of rest. Why is he doing this now? Because he's renewing the covenant. Perform the festival of weeks for yourself, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Three times a year, come before me. Do not offer the blood of my slaughtering with leaven. Bring the first fruits of the first fruits of your land into the house. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Covenant renewal, folks. Then he said, Please show me your glory, your kavod. Now watch this. And he said, I shall cause all my goodness to pass before you. And I shall proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I shall favor grace. This is glory. This is all what the characteristics of glory is. I will have grace on whom I will have grace. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Do you know what? I looked up the word kavod in the Greek. It's it's. Uh, Doxo, doxo, oh, I have it in the next slide, oh, wait. But you're unable to see my face, and it shall be while my glory passes by, I shall put you in the cleft and cover you. I'm going to submit to you that while my forgiveness and my atonement passes by, this is where I'm going to put you. Yahushua is the glory. And he is the salvation from Yahuwah. The noun kavod takes on its most unusual and distinctive meaning. Forty-five times this form of the root relates to a visible manifestation of Elohim. And whenever the glory of Elohim is mentioned, 
This usage must take, uh, be taken account of. Its force is so compelling that it remolds the meaning of the word doxa in Greek. From an opinion of men in the Greek classics to something absolutely objective. The bulk of occurrences where Elohim's glory is a visible manifestation have to do with the tabernacle. Why? Because at the tabernacle, that's where men are forgiven. The tabernacle is where you come and you say, I'm sorry, I've done what I shouldn't have done. I need your atonement. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. That's what that's about. And that's where the glory is revealed. With the temple in Ezekiel's vision of the exile restoration, that's right, where is the glory of him revealed? It's in the restoration of the house of Israel. When Messiah Yeshua came and he said, I'm going to take away the death sentence. Here's my glory and you're going to be brought back in. It's related to the exile and the restoration right here in the lexicon. These manifestations are directly related to God's self-declosure and his intent to dwell among men forever. But he's got to take care of the condition of sin. But it's only going to be for the people that are repentant and acknowledged. The ones that are doing this, they're done. They're done. So notice that this word doxa in Greek, it does say opinion, but it's judgment. This has to do with forgiveness. You're either forgiven or you're not. This is a judgment. Deciding whether you will be passed on or you will be, are you a sheep or a goat here? There's a judgment going on here. Whether you're good or bad concerning someone. This is why Yahushua is the glory of Elohim. Can you stand with me? Do we have any other comments before we close? Okay. I have a comment. Mark? Yes. Over here. Yes. Oh, I, I find it interesting that uh, despite all the challenges Moses was going through and all the frustrations, that this caused him to want to draw closer yes. to Yahuwah. And uh, when you think this is really fairly early in his ministry, as he, you know, he doesn't know how long he has, but he's got a long way to go. And uh, it's just, I think it's, you know, the way you know, he just wants to see his glory. He just wants to know, know him better so he can better handle situations down the road. He has tasted what is good. He has seen a writing. He's seen the first written alphabet ever that's been given. And he wants to see this glory, this forgiveness, this atonement pass over. For the, he's, he's acting as a priest. Please show me the glory. Show us the forgiveness. Let your forgiveness, let your, let your compassionate nature pass over us. Isn't that what happened on, in Egypt when the, when the death angel passed over? Wasn't it a forgiveness when they saw the blood? The, the glory passes. Imagine the glory is passing over Egypt. And the glory sees those who are truly repentant because they've obeyed and put the blood on the door. And the time is coming. It may be this bitter water. I hadn't thought of it that way. That, that it's going to search out the hearts of men and find out who really has been repentant, who really wants to walk, who wants to have a relationship with me, and who doesn't. And it's going to be evident. Man, that's going to be, that's going to be 
crazy if that happens like that. So let's close this. Elohim wishes to dwell with men, to have his reality and his splendor known to them. But this is only possible when they take into account of the stunning quality of his holiness and set out in faith and obedience to let that character be manifested in them. The several references which speak of God's glory filling the earth and are becoming evident are instructive. Now think of it. His glory is going to fill the earth. His forgiveness and atonement is going to fill the earth to those who are ready to receive it. Yes. Earlier when Gary was talking about being set outside the camp and he mentioned the leper, um, I just, in my mind, and I don't know if this applies or not, so give me some grace here, but <laughs> in my mind, the leper is set outside the camp for a week, or, you know, for seven days, and in that time, the word Metzora, when you look at the, the word picture of it, it's basically that they have to go outside and think about what they've done, you know, within mm. themselves, you know, just really do an internal check and figure out how, what they did not only to themselves, but what they did to the other people in the camp and that kind of thing. And then there's a whole protocol of how they come back into the camp and how they cleanse themselves along the way coming back into the camp. And to me, that's a picture of what's what going on as well. It's such it ties a in. God is not, he doesn't change. He's the same. He's acting the same as he did with the leper, with the people here that have sinned, with the master when he came to die to bring about uh, glory and restoration of the exiles and everyone else who wanted to join. They can all be a part of it if they're willing to accept him, if they're willing to admit that they've done wrong and say, whatever you have told me to do, I'm willing to do it. I'm going to surrender. That's what it takes. So on the one hand, they quite legitimately refer to that reputation for greatness which God alone deserves, not only because of his natural position as king, but because of his unsurpassed activity as deliverer and savior, glory. His first step towards the achievement of these goals was to fill the tabernacle with his presence and then the temple, the glory, where now forgiveness and, and restoration can happen. But nowhere is the reality and the splendor of his presence and his character seen greater as in his son. Here the near blinding quality of his glory is fully portrayed. We beheld his glory, the glory as one of the, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Through him and through his presence in the assembly, Elohim's glory is indeed filling the earth as Messiah atones for and covenants his people. And so your part in this is, as you've been forgiven, as you've been called to be the priesthood, now you walk about to bring a restoration, to bring people to that place of repentance, to bring them out of the high hand and rebellion, as Moses is doing here, to bring them into the place of acknowledging him as most high. We just watched the movie of Daniel. As he told Nebuchadnezzar, because of your arrogance, you've got to acknowledge that he is one sovereign over all the earth and acknowledge him as the most high. That's our job. That's what we're called to do, is to be like Moses, bring about restoration. Father, we thank you for your word today. Oh, we're so thankful that your glory fills us in this earth. 
We're so thankful that your compassionate, merciful, forgiving nature is there and evident. That you wish no one perish. That you're giving everybody a chance. You, like the leper, they have a chance seven days to think about what they've done. If they are not willing, then they're not cleansed. Father, thank you for cleansing our hearts and putting your word in our hearts place of the things that were wicked. Thank you for bringing us into restoration. Thank you for your son. It is a full example of your glory and your mercy. We give you praise and glory for this word today. May it change us. May it help us shape our, mold our thinking going forward and to be able to declare this to people that, that don't know you. How awesome that the creator of heaven and earth is this merciful. Thank you, Father. We glorify in your son Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Hey. Thank you, everybody online for joining us. Thank you, everybody here. Now, remember, go about being merciful and gracious and forgiving. Be like your Elohim. Amen?